Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Hello, all you beautiful misfits and rejects. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder, and welcome to episode 71. I figured we would take the time to kind of continue to go through some of the adventures that I'd had, um, just kind of kind of round out my story to the audience a little bit better, give them some more perspective on a few of the fun adventures that I've had and you know what keeps driving me to go out and seek that type of lifestyle that I have tasted and want to continue to perpetuate. So I think we left off, you know, last episode with a lot of talk about intuition, using your intuition, traveling around the world and having experiences that are both positive and some I perceive negative, you know, with um, being possibly robbed, you know, having some petty theft happen to you or even some somebody walking into your home and stealing something of yours, uh, guns as the hot topic that it is these days and the experiences that I've had um, in the third world in my life with guns and as well as just the police and how they might extort money from you at some point along your travels. All little fun cultural experiences that everybody does go through on the road. And I think most people would venture to say that, you know, just a few bruises, nothing bad. You know, although there are exceptions to the rule and there have been incidences where people would say it was absolutely the worst experience of them their lives being held in a third world jail for a certain period of time or you know being cornered by a police officer if you will metaphorically speaking him preying upon your fear and having him take a lot more money from you than you were expecting because he convinced you that you had done something horribly wrong or just being in an environment that you genuinely just don't feel completely safe in, whether it's your home in America or whether you're living abroad and you do choose to take that responsibility of owning a gun and then finding yourself in a situation where you don't actually know how to use it in the, in the most efficient way rather than just pulling out and just firing aimlessly at an intruder who might not even be an intruder or having just that uncomfortable moment where you're questioning the fact that you just pulled your gun on somebody that might be in your house and you can't determine whether they are there to do you harm or not because they seem really calm and they seem really friendly and they have a very good excuse for being there even though you just woke up and you're confused why they're there but in the end you know, you could find yourself in a situation where it just doesn't quite add up to pull that trigger. And if you do, are you going to regret it? I don't know. But we're going to go into just a few more stories of mine, maybe take you through, again, that year that so profoundly changed my life back in the day traveling with John and try to just give some more perspective on adventures and, and the way that by being on the road, seeing new places, new things, meeting new people, you really just 
are constantly bombarded by experiences that you've never had to deal with before. And in doing that repetitively, you really start to shape your character in a way that is more, I think, genuinely, authentically you. Because when we are living in our comfort zones, we are able to wear that mask or we're able to project that person that we want everyone to think we are. But when you're out and exposed and being constantly bombarded with situations you've never dealt with before, you've never had to deal with before, things that make you very uncomfortable, your true character comes out. Sometimes you're not going to like what you find, but you do discover it and then you can make changes. So it's all good stuff. It's all worth getting out there and mixing it up and lifestyle design, getting out there and really just taking that leap, pushing, trying, trying to do what you want, be who you want to be authentically, genuinely, not compromising too much of yourself. Life is full of compromise. We all know that, but trying to really at least cut off that excess fat that's unnecessary and get down to the brass tacks. Who are you? What are you? What do you want to be? And go for it. So getting back to a few of the travel adventures that I had, being on the road with John, episode 27, and seeing the things that we did, you know, I guess I'll pick back up, you know, being in Russia. And again, we're traveling with very little money, only the idea that we're going to go as long and as far as we can on as little as possible. And taking the Trans-Siberian to Mongolia. Now, Russia wouldn't let us in without a visa and without an exit ticket. You had to basically have your whole trip planned out before entering Russia, which we were trying to accomplish while sleeping on the streets in Sweden. We would go to the embassy early in the morning in Sweden. We'd find out all this information, get the necessary documents, come back, try to get our paperwork in before closing time. I mean, it was rigorous. It was three days all day of trying to do the, jump through the necessary hoops just to get a two-week visa to travel in Russia. Once we finally did, though, we had basically our ferry booked from Sweden to Helsinki, our train booked from St. Petersburg to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, and one night hotel stay in Moscow for a whopping $500, which was a huge bite into our budget. Remember, John landed with 1200 bucks. I still had 15 and so that dropped us both into the John in the high hundreds, me into the, the $1,000 range, and we had to do it. That's the only way Russia would let us in. So we did it. We got our boat across. We got our adventures done in Russia for the short period of time that we were there, met some really nice people. We had, you know, gentlemen take us home the first night when we were sleeping on the street. We got to stay with his family, got to see, you know, how a, a Russian family lived. They had old Russian newspapers, you know, pa pasted on the wall, insulation for the house. Um, read an interesting book prior to getting to Russia called The Russians. It's long, a little boring, but you do get to, re you get a really good sense of Russian mentality. And so that was, I think, really beneficial for us. And, you know, had a really, I love Russia. I want to go back. I think there's a lot of cool things that Russia has to offer that, you know, the West isn't really ever advertising, you know, Russia's cool. Russians are great, really cool place worth going to and checking out, but going 
to Mongolia. Now that's exciting. You know, that Chinggis Khan, Genghis Khan is what we call him in the West, but when you're over there, it's Chinggis Khan. And getting on that train, it was a five-day train ride across Siberia, which was long, straight, and boring. You know, I know the Trans-Siberian sounds like a wonderful adventure, and it could be, and it might have changed since I did it last, but because we had two weeks, we weren't really allowed to get off and explore certain areas because of a time crunch. So we pretty much sat on the train for five straight days in a shared car with other Mongolians and made some interesting friends, actually, So I'll get to in a minute. But I was thinking that, you know, going across Russia and, and Russia being Russian, Siberia being Siberia, and the landscape being what it was. It was July, so summertime wasn't it wasn't super cold. It's rough. These people are tough, tough people, and I can't imagine. You know, there's a book out there called The Long Walk, and when this, I think he was Polish, was put into a Siberian concentration camp during World War II, and then broke out. And he walked from Siberia to Kathmandu, Nepal, across the Gobi Desert through the Himalayas. Fascinating book. Highly recommend you read it. But just going back to lifestyle design and chasing dreams, like people like that who break out of a concentration camp and then walk to freedom, like you can do anything if you really want it bad enough. Like that's real. If you want it bad enough and you're willing to dedicate the time and the energy and the effort and not give up, like I think anybody out there, no matter what your life circumstances are, can accomplish way, way, way more than you expect. And I learned a lot of interesting things about myself on this train ride of mine because, you know, I was never, as I mentioned in past episodes, characterized as the brightest of students. I don't think my teachers would have ever said like, oh, Chapin's going places with his intellect. Um, with that said, though, I don't consider myself an idiot. But I am a slow reader, for example, something that John and I always joked about because reading wasn't our forte. And I learned that it takes me five hours to read 100 pages in a book. I was reading on the train, The City of Joy, another great book I highly recommend. Everybody reads. It's about a priest who moves to uh, Calcutta, I believe, and he lives in the, the squalor of all these poor people in Calcutta and just the, the peace and joy that he found living amongst these people. That's a fictional tale, but still worth the read. But anyways, folks, yeah, it takes me five hours to read a hundred pages. How about that? Uh, I do like reading. Don't read a lot, but um, the books I do find myself reading, I, I think give me a lot of great perspective, I read a lot of biographies and factual information on people in particular, I do find people very interesting. Hence, hence the reason I have a podcast called Misfits and Rejects about fascinating people around the world. And then arriving into Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, again, just one of those very sort of uh, adventuresome sounding places. And in the way that we were doing it, uh, put us, you know, on the streets of Ulaanbaatar with the idea that we were just going to camp, urban camp, um, until, and I should go backpad a little bit, you know, the, the cabin that we shared on the way to Ulaanbaatar was with a Mongolian woman and a Mongolian man, not related, but 
they were just travelers. And her name was Baisa. She spoke actually very good English. And we come to find out she was a tour guide studying in Russia, but would go back and work in Mongolia as a tour guide, take tours into the Gabi Desert and be a translator. And we befriended her and she was very nice. And we told her our plan and she kept asking where we we're going to stay. And we always were very honest saying we were just going to camp and, and see how things went. To which she said, no, you're going to come stay with me. But I do have to get into town and, and at least suss out my family situation because she'd been gone studying for quite a few months and said that we should contact her within three days of arriving in Ulaanbaatar. So we got off the train, we said our goodbyes, John and I did our standard procedures, went to the nearest place we got in very early in the morning and we had actually covered so many time zones crossing Siberia. We were shot. Um, the sun was coming up. There was a little makeshift bodega liquor store. We got ourselves a beer each. We went into the center of Ulaanbaatar. We cl like climbed into these little bushes that we felt protected by. We rolled out our mats, put our heads on our backpacks, sipped our beers, and started dozing off. Well, I don't know if anyone's been to Mongolia that's listening. If you have, I think you can agree that Mongolia can be very stressful. Mongolian culture, Mongolian people, although very friendly, do have a very violent past and can be very aggressive. And the nomadic sort of culture that it is, they don't have a very great sense of personal space. And so within whatever, two minutes of rolling out our mats in the center of Mongolia, this little, I mean, there's buildings around us. We're like in a little like bush area by a building. Two homeless Mongolians come rushing us in the bushes with a, metal pipe demanding that we give them more or less all of our stuff very shocked a little bit rattled we quickly grabbed our things and threw our bottle of water at them and rushed on out of there not knowing really what was going to happen if we chose to give them our stuff or not give them our stuff but we decided that just to get up and move was was probably the best call so that was a little bit unsettling, and we immediately decided that the best and safest move would be to venture out into the wilderness, which Ulaanbaatar is settled in a little valley, and you can see the rolling hills and forest around it very easily. It's only a few miles away, so we went, got some food at the, the local little grocery, just enough supplies to satiate ourselves for the next three days while we camped in the woods, trying just to, like, gain perspective on where we were, what we were doing, like how this was actually going to work because this was intense, like straight off the bat, super intense. And as we were walking out towards the hillsides, you know, you could definitely see that this place was intense. I mean, there was violence immediately around us, street fights, domestic violence, just things that you don't see in a lot of places that open where here it was very open and you could tell that people were interested, if you will, to intimidate you as a Westerner. And, you know, maybe as a tourist now it's way different, but back then, you know, in 2000, they had a, a um, really harsh winter. A lot of the nomadic people couldn't feed their children. So they went and dropped them off in the city, hoping they could give them a better life. And there was a lot of street kids, a lot of homeless street kids living in the sewers, and they had these little gangs. And 
it was rough, you know, even just being a Westerner, like there was intimidation factors. Did I feel unsafe? Yes. All the time. Did I ever have someone actually punch me in the face? No, but it was the first place I encountered where I was legitimately thinking like this place is intense, very stressful, seemingly very violent and just a lot of alcoholism, a lot of just nomadic folks doing what they do in a city sort of environment. And man, it was just, it was wild. So John and I went out into the, the forest, set up our little camp, um, hung out for about three days, kind of just tanking it all in. We could see the city from where we camped. Um, we had a lot of night, lot of cool nights of laughter watching the stars. Some saw some of the most beautiful shooting stars I've ever seen. Got eaten alive by horse flies and we wandered back in. And back then, I don't know if this is pre-cell phone, but in order to make a phone call in Ulaanbaatar, there were these guys who had these crazy phones that would just sit on street corners. It was like an old dial-up phone. I don't know how they're connected, but you could literally call anybody with these dial-up phones. They'd sit on the corners. And so we called Baisa, asked her what the situation was, if she could find us a place to stay. And she did. She said, yes, I'll come get you. Um, and she came and got us and we hiked and she took us into a old beat up sort of apartment building where she had two cousins who were willing to let us stay there. Really cool in the sense that these people are just so generous and open, not speaking a lick of English, let us stay with them. These two cousins, Chuga and Dolga were their names. And we sat down in their kitchen, Baisa left, and they prepared the fresh goat innards for us upon our arrival. Somebody had slaughtered a goat within the family, and I don't know the cultural norms of this, but I'm assuming that you know the insides are the most prized aspect of the goat. So they threw the intestines, the lungs, the liver, the heart, all into boiling water. They put a giant chopping board in front of us with a knife, nothing else. A little bit of kimchi, I think, was on the side. They dumped out all the water, pulled out all the boiled innards of this goat. It smelled like animal feces. They put it on the chopping board, sat down, and just looked at us. And we were just like, I guess that's the cue to eat. To which we just would slice off bits of this stuff, take a bite of kimchi in our mouth, and just eat it up and... I'll tell you what, like I can eat a lot of things and I would go back and legitimately eat most of those animal parts except for the intestines that legitimately tasted like goat shit. It smelled like goat shit, tasted like goat shit. It was pretty raw, literally like just raw. And what are you going to do? You're going to disrespect them by not eating the, the prized animal that they might've just slaughtered for your arrival. And Daga and Chuga, again, were cousins, and they were seamstresses. They would go to work every day and sew and then come back, and we were sleeping in the living room, and they had this one show that they always wanted to watch at like 5 p.m., so we'd all sit and watch this one Mongolian soap opera. And they were just cute as can be, really friendly, but couldn't understand a thing they said. John and I would wander throughout the city during the days. Um always anticipating because Baisa, the woman that we had met on the train, 
had promised us that she'd be happy to take us out into the Gobi Desert for one of her tours, and we would be free of charge. And so every week it was it was going to be a new adventure out into the Gobi, and every week she would have to cancel on us because her tour company uh, told her that she couldn't take us. And so after about a week staying with Daga and Chuga, we were moved into her uncle's house, uh, Augie. And Augie was in the military, and he was a colonel in the military who was in charge of military rations, the food, essentially, for the military in Mongolia. And he was a single dude. He lived in an apartment, and he would go to work all day. We slept in the living room, and when he would come home, he'd ha- he would drink his vodka, and we would play chess with Augie and sweetheart of a man, a wild man as well, loved his vodka, and just overall, just an incredible experience. And in the days, as I said, John and I would wander around, but it was genuinely a very violent time, place. I don't know. I haven't been back, but it was a place that we didn't feel safe. So in order to actually get into a peaceful place, we would stay in the apartment most days. Or if we did wander out, we would go wander to like what we felt was a sanctuary, like one of the Buddhist temples. And we'd get enter the temple and we would just kind of post up in a corner of the temple and just sit and relax. And John would draw and I would read and we'd stay there for like eight hours because we knew we wouldn't have to see or encounter any type of violence. And we did that pretty much every day, waiting again, just to go into the Gobi Desert and this epic adventure that Baisa had promised us she'd be willing and more than happy to take us on. And the family would always, you know, cook us food or take us out into their countryside yurts where we would get to experience real Mongolian barbecue where they heat up hot rocks and throw chunks of meat into this like aluminum or cast iron coconut like milk jug and they steam the meat and veggies for a long time and and then you just have like this giant kind of very barbaric feast where everyone just, just dumps it out and you all sit around this like centered kind of like plate and you just grab these chunks of meat off the platter it was i mean i felt like i was right back when genghis khan chingis khan was doing his thing in mongolia and then the day came and baisa was like you're in we have two dutch guys they have a private tour you guys can jump in the back of the old military jeep and we're going to go deep into the gobi desert for a week you guys can tag along and this was actually the day before we the day before we went we had that mongolian barbecue i just mentioned and the the meat didn't get cooked all the way through so although i was fine throughout the night the next morning when we got in the jeep i was not feeling well at all and within the first hour on this bumpy road going into the middle of nowhere. I was like, you got to pull over. This is, I'm sick. Like I got to shit. And now the Gobi desert is actually vast and diverse in the types of deserts. It is, you know, it's not just a sand desert. Like they have uh, little low lying grasses and foliage that they say like truckers when they drive across, it will fall asleep. And they won't wake up for hours, but they'll they'll veer off the trail, off the, the dirt road. They won't hit anything because there's nothing there. And they can just drive for hours with their foot on the gas, wake up, then come back having to try to figure out, you know, where the road was. It was absolutely beautiful. One of the most 
visually beautiful, freeing places I've ever been. Like I fell in love with the landscape. It was absolutely gorgeous. But yeah, within the first hour, I'm sitting there. I We would pull over. I would scurry off into this like treeless, lifeless, little bushy area that I wasn't hiding behind anything. There was nothing to hide behind and just shitting my brains out while everyone in the Jeep basically watched. It was embarrassing and uncomfortable. And I mean, it is what it is. But by the time we got to our first little stopping point, which is like a Mad Max style little village in the middle of the Gobi Desert, it was clear that I wasn't going to be able to go any farther. And in fact, Bisa had said, although she had kind of snuck us on this little adventure, the Dutch guys weren't very happy because they felt they had paid for a private adventure and they didn't appreciate having two guys tag along. And so we were left there in the middle of nowhere in literally Mad Max beyond Thunderdome, little town where they're, the locals are drinking horse fermented horse milk and I'm sick as a dog. I'm sleeping. John's out kind of exploring, doing his thing. There's a drunk guy who keeps barging into my room while I'm sleeping. There's this random ping pong tournament going on. Like it was crazy. It was super weird. And we decided that it was best that I just get better. We'd already been in Mongolia, primarily Ulaanbaatar for that month. It was time to move on and head to China. And we're going to go back and get our visas for China. And so we got a bus back the next day. We got our visas, which took a few days. We said our goodbyes and we got a train to the border of Mongolia and China. And I was relieved to leave. Like I said, it was the most, one of the most interesting places I've ever been, but I was genuinely super stressed out the whole time, just based on the constant violence I had seen in the streets, domestic, just physical, like gang violence, like there's beatdowns every day. There's a lot of intimidation as John and I would walk around a lot of alpha males, just a place that, you know, if I go back now, I, I don't obviously wouldn't be sleeping the streets or trying to do it in the way I did. I probably hire a tour and be amazing and I'd love it and be a way different experience. I'm glad I got to have what I did, but it was, it was intense. And, uh, Man, I, I think about Bison or family a lot and, and how kind they were to us. And, and this, you know, not having much, these people were poor, but they let us stay for a month, basically. And although we tried to contribute in any way we could, you know, they, they did, they, they extended their hand in a lot of situations and wouldn't let us pay. And we're just so kind and wonderful. I, I hope they're well and the family's well and I wish I wish I could reach back out and, and connect with them again someday. Maybe one day I will go back there and, and try to find Daga and Chuga, Augie and Baisa and, and see how they're all doing. But upon arriving in, in China, well, we got to the border and then we took a bus, an overnight bus to Beijing. I had a contact and actually um, it was a friend of a friend who was willing to let us stay in her apartment and we stayed in Beijing for a few weeks in this beautiful apartment over the temple of heaven, just wandering around, having a completely different experience, city life, um, less stressful, great food, and just really, really feeling the, the Chinese vibe, which we had heard mixed, mixed reviews about, you know, we had heard that, um, just a lot of people, saying a lot more negative things about China, but they'd also been there when it was a lot more 
communist and um, their experience, I think, were more controlled, where we had more of a freeing sort of experience. We could walk around the city and we also had a nice apartment with AC that we could just crash in, sleep well, a nice woman taking you know, taking us around, showing us tourist attractions. Really nice contrast. And then one day being in uh, Tiananmen Square, a young man walked up to us and invited us back to his art studio. As again, going back to last episode, when you're in China and you find yourself in Tiananmen Square, one of the hustles that a lot of these like con artists utilize or just, just hustlers in general is they invite you to show, they invite you back to their art studio where they want to share their art with you. Well, first they approach you and they say they want to practice their English. And then as you speak to them and they become really friendly, they say, Hey, I'm an artist. Can I show you my art? And you say, of course, you've been so kind. You, you taught me so much about the history of Tiananmen Square, yada, yada, yada. And you, they, you wander deep into the the back markets uh, outside of Tiananmen Square and a few things could happen. You know, if they are criminal, like really criminal, they get you lost and then you get robbed or they do genuinely take you to their, their store that they represent, which they've been pretending to be artists for. And once you, once they get you in their little art store, then they really try to sell you all these little different like art drawings of Tiananmen Square and everything like that. Very standard classic hustle by hustlers in Tiananmen Square. We just so happened to find a hustler who was actually genuinely kind of cool and not only obsessed with getting our money. So we sat down. He went and got the actual artist who was supposedly drawing these drawings, probably just the owner of the the little store, and started asking us questions and we told him our intentions which was to maybe travel more teach english in china if we could because we heard that was a, a viable way to like hang out in a place for a long time and make some money to which he said well i'm a teacher at this one college and we'd love to have you come stay and teach our students he made a call within 10 minutes we had a job and within another week or two we were on a train going to xian to teach in a little village outside of Xi'an called Lantian. It's where some of the most beautiful jade comes from in the world. And we were going to go teach English in this old rock factory in Lantian for a month. And I mean, another great experience where we just felt like we couldn't have done any better for ourselves. We had a nice room to sleep in and nice is a relative term, but for what we were sleeping on normally, which was, a very thin sort of yoga mat on the streets of most of the places that we were at. This was a step up and we had a nice bathroom and yeah, we were living the life three meals a day. Couldn't have been better. So we spent a month in Washi university. Washi university was an experimental university in China. They were, um, I want to say like, subsidizing the school so the the local farm kids could get an education and man i mean the the headmaster was super cool old chinese dude uh smoked his ciggies behind his desk didn't speak a word of english we had a translator this young student who was translating for us who's kind of a bitch actually she was not very friendly to us because it felt like she was kind of jealous of her situation and we found that you know as long as we just taught 
a few hours every day. We could literally wander into any class we wanted. The teacher would just say, welcome. Please take over with whatever you want to say in English. And, and we were good. Three meals a day, place to sleep. All the internet we could utilize. We hadn't been on the internet for a long time, so we sat there communicating with our families, you know, for a lot of hours every day. Got to know the, a lot of the, the college students who were really cool, fun people. Played basketball with some of the guys. Um, all of them wanted names. They all wanted us to name them. So we had to start coming up with all these creative names for every single Chinese student that we met. Learned how to play ping pong. Had a few guys that we lifted weights with trying to get fit again. Like, felt like a college kid again. It was awesome. Um, it was in the hills, so we were able to go exercise and run through the mountains and, you know, breathe that fresh country Chinese air that was just different from obviously the big cities of Beijing. And spent a month just teaching, hanging out, doing doing what we do. And as we, within the first week, we kind of realized though that where there were a few criteria that we did have to fulfill, which was we did have to kind of propagate some of the propaganda that China wanted to instill in their students. So we had every morning to, to wake up and in front of hundreds, sometimes, you know, a thousand students, they would all line up. And John and I had to read from a list of English sentences that were basically like they I would we would say it on the microphones and then they would repeat it back which was stuff like China is the most powerful country in the world and then you'd have like 3 to you know 500,000 students repeat back China is the most co powerful country in the world and then they would the next sentence would be like Chinese and English are the two most powerful languages in the world. And then they'd say, Chinese and English are the two most powerful languages in the world. And that was about 30 minutes of basically just, you know, doing their propaganda that they wanted us to do, which was, you know, what am I going to say? It's, it was interesting. I had to do it under circumstances and, you know, it was a great learning experience. And, you know, speaking of like how we met Bice on the train, one thing I forgot to mention was on the train ride from Beijing to Xi'an, the overnight train, we met this 15-year-old girl named Maggie and her mom who were traveling back to Xi'an. And Maggie was learning English and her mom was encouraging me to to speak to her English in English. John was actually in a separate compartment. That's just how our tickets worked out. But upon arrival in Xi'an, Maggie's mom, who we actually named Catherine, uh, gave us her contact info. Or no, actually, that's not how it worked. What happened was, is we went our separate ways. And then within the first few days at the university, Maggie's mom called us and Maggie got on the phone and she basically said, we'd like to come visit you because we were about 30 minutes outside of Xi'an. And she came out with her mom just to hang out again. And we kind of formulated this really cool relationship. So after that first month in the university, and we were kind of ready to move on. Catherine, Maggie's mom, said, why don't you come stay with us at our house in Xi'an, their little apartment, to which John and I did. And our, John and I's plan was to go to Tibet. So we went and stayed with Catherine and the family. And another great, interesting experience getting to live with these these Chinese folks who were very accommodating and, and took great care of us, and showed us a lot of cool, interesting 
sites and also helped us get our plane tickets because we actually made a hundred and either fifty or seventy five dollars from that month of working at the Chinese university, which wasn't really expected because they hadn't really talked about money with us. It was more or less a free exchange of time for food and accommodation. But in the end, the headmaster, who I, who I said was seemed like a really cool dude, handed us each 175, um, roughly, you know, dollars. And we were able to buy tickets, plane tickets to Lhasa, Tibet. And so we stayed with Maggie and her mom, Catherine, for a week and then said our goodbyes and we flew to Lhasa. And upon landing in Lhasa, we were just absolutely high as kites from the altitude. Just that change really messed our heads up. And we dizzily walked to what we could figure was our hostel because again, our um, flights or whatever we had booked somehow had, there was accommodation available to us because of that um, package that we booked. And we landed and just laid in bed for like 24 hours just giggling because we were so fucking high from the altitude, like just couldn't even think straight. And we wandered around Lhasa for a few days. And one thing I wanted to mention that has always stuck out to me, and I still find it interesting, there is nothing I'm trying to imply by my next statement, but I do think it's interesting, is that the most violent places that I've ever been thus far, aside from America, which is super violent, in the world where predominantly Buddhist. And that to me is just a mind fuck. You know, Mongolia is a Buddhist country. And like I said earlier, one of the most violent places I've ever been through the domestic violence, the on the street to just the gang violence, just, just violence in general. And then the second most violent place I've ever been was Lhasa, Tibet. Now, a lot of people who know the history of Tibet and the Chinese occupation of it might instantly jump to the conclusion that, oh, it's the Chinese that are perpetuating this violence. And just from what I observed in the time that I was there, it wasn't the case. It was the Tibetan people fighting amongst themselves. In fact, I saw more domestic violence or as much domestic violence in Lhasa as I did in Mongolia, Ulaanbaatar. So again, I don't know. I'm not trying to imply anything, but I think it's interesting. And I also think that just because you identify with one specific type of religion, if you will, or philosophy that preaches nonviolence doesn't mean that the entire culture of people who practice this are nonviolent people. And I think another great example of that are, you know, what's going on in uh, Myanmar right now up in the north with the the problems that the Muslims are having with the Buddhists who are pushing them out of northern Myanmar. And I, I don't know enough about it to really get into it. I've seen little snippets on the news, but there's a huge issue right now with the Buddhist population being very aggressive and violent towards the Muslim population. And there's a, a huge Muslim population who's fleeing the country of Myanmar. So just something to throw out there. Interesting kind of point of view when, you know, the world is so focused on Muslims right now and, and things that are happening in Muslim cultures when, you know, I think identification to any type of philosophy can lead to 
you feeling like your belief system and what you identify with is the right way to believe and those who don't deserve to be punished for it. So just something to think about. But Lhasa was interesting. You know, Dalai Lama hasn't been there in a long time. His palace is still there, but not occupied by him. And can wander around it in a few days. And after that, we got a guy to drive us, actually. Drive us through the Himalayas to Kathmandu. No, actually, he drove us to the border of Nepal, which was like a a three-day sort of, three to five-day sort of drive through the Himalayas, which was, like Mongolia, probably one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my whole life, driving through the Himalayas, just like the vastness, the land, the ginormity of the landscape is just breathtaking. You can't really comprehend it until you see it for yourself. And you almost feel like you're on the moon. You know, you just are in such awe of the beauty of what this planet does have to offer. It's just, it's breathtaking. But there was a very significant experience that happened on this, this car ride. Now, John and I, because of our leftovers from what we had earned at the Chinese university, had enough money to hire a car. It was $60 total, I believe, to hire a car for, I think, the three-day. I think it was a three-day, three-night, or I forget. We slept on the road for like three nights to get to the border of Nepal and China. And upon leaving Lhasa, in the middle of the road, in the middle of nowhere, stood a monk. Now, not uncommon, you know, the fact that we are in, you know, the spiritual capital of Buddhism in the world. Uh, but the fact that we pulled over and picked him up was a little astonishing to us because John and I were under the impression that we had hired a private vehicle to take us. Now, what are we going to do? Kick out, you know, Buddhist monk? Of course not. So he gets in the front seat. John and I are in the back. We start our drive and we have the most pleasant drive with this man who doesn't speak a word of English. The driver doesn't either, but the monk himself just seems so enthusiastic about having us in the car because John and I are always, when we're together, kind of giggly and telling jokes and just having fun as we do and always laughing. And, and the, the monk was in hysterics with us the whole time, although he didn't, I'm pretty sure, understand what we were saying. And I don't know if any of you have seen the, the movie Caddyshack, but when Bill Murray describes the Dalai Lama and as he's caddying for the Dalai Lama in this little monologue he gives to one of the other actors, he uses the term Lama and he keeps referring to the Dalai Lama as the Lama. And so John and I kind of had fun with this and we were using that terminology as well, not to describe the, the gentleman sitting in the front seat, but just, you know, we were just being jokes being idiots. But the gentleman in the front seat, fully robed as a lama or as a, a Buddhist monk, was just laughing with us. And when we would stop, this 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 monk would buy us sweet tea and biscuits. And, you know, I'm assuming he's not a paid paid Buddhist monk, but somehow he had enough money to share whatever he had with us. And when we would stop, he would get a hotel and we would sleep usually in the garden of the hotel or, I mean, we're in the middle of nowhere. So it wasn't, these vast spaces weren't hard to pitch a tent or just roll out our plastics. We didn't have a tent. 
And on the last night, when we finally got to the border, we had to share a room with him. And so we got this little dorm room on the border of China and Nepal. And again, we were just thick as thieves, all of us, just hanging out, didn't understand anything, hugging him, taking photos with him. And then when it was time to cross the border the next morning, we all walked to the border and he was helping us with our passports, get everything done. We got to see his passport and he actually was a Buddhist Lama. So I'm not super familiar with how you become that. I'm assuming you're born into it or you earn that in some way, shape or form, but he wasn't just a monk, but he was a high ranking Lama. And as I learned from John, who has studied quite a bit of Buddhism over the years, like you're not supposed to touch these people. They're holy. And John and I being the assholes that we were the whole time, we're hugging him, like kissing him on his bald head, like just being obnoxious. And he was just having a ball. And I think just accepted the fact that we were ignorant and didn't know any better. But just to see this man's joyful openness and friendliness with us was life-changing. Like there wasn't anything in him that hung on to any of the emotions that he had. He would laugh hysterically at something I'm 99% sure he didn't understand. And then he would be silent, unaffected by that emotion that had just come over him. And you could really see the profoundness and the practice that he had sustained for so many years had genuinely allowed him to become this person of um, transparency, something that someone who could just let these things flow through him without hanging on to any of those emotional attachments, whether it was joy or sadness or fear or anger and something that I've hung on to and thought about and really tried to understand for many years since that experience. And we're at 47 minutes now and there's still a lot more to tell, but I think we'll save that for next week. I think the next few episodes will wrap up more, more of my travels before we get back into hearing other people's experiences about traveling, expatriatism, lifestyle design. And I'll just get to share mine with you guys because Again, thank you for tuning in. It's really nice to know that all you out there are listening and enjoying these episodes. And it's really fulfilling for me as well, you know, and inspirational getting to hear not only the stories, but, you know, share mine. Not that I'm inspired by my story, but that I am able to at least share it in a way that people can hear it and, and make their own judgments about it because I'm a pretty quiet dude, actually. Like, I don't say that much. And, to have a platform where people can hear more about me is fulfilling. So thank you for listening. And, you know, next week you can also probably expect another episode on a bit of my travels before I get back to Nicaragua and, and get back on the capturing stories from travelers and other expatriates that are living in Nicaragua or traveling through. So with that said, I want to say goodbye and thank you for listening and much love. I look forward to serving you with more great stories in the future. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out and spread your wings and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that Maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but 
when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.